Welcome, everyone, to the, the Ionosphere Christmas special. We have me, Eric Daly, at Libra underscore Rex. We have Harmonic Tension. Introduce yourself, because you're new. Uh, I'm at Harmonic Tension on Twitter. Uh, I like sunsets and long walks on the beach, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have. I'm, I'm just a random smorgasbord of, of different things, so. Uh, I don't have anything to to say about that. A generalist like Jason. Yeah, that's right. I think everyone here is probably mostly generalist. Ryan Feldman. Yes, sir. Also known as Path to Manliness. I got my festive Thanksgiving hat because there's a holiday coming up here, I guess. Um, I am famous for many things. Lately, ranting about The Matrix and saying that the sequels are actually great movies, and I stand by that. So Which if you want to fight me on Twitter, there's a shitload of people retweeting that dumbass thread that's got some pretty good insights in it, but it's starting out rough. So get through the first three tweets. Um, yes. My website is pathtomailingness.com. I've got a book out. It's been out for a while. I think everyone knows that. Um, I offer advice and tell Chance to stop picking his nose. And I don't take things too seriously, if you can't tell by my hat. <laughs> Speaking of people that take things too seriously, Chance Lunsford. What? Chance, they want to know about you, man. Yeah. They want to know who you are. Of course are. they do. Of course they do. It's privileged information, god damn it. Merry fucking Christmas. Next. Oh, Not a chance, yeah. everyone. Uh, James Connors. James Connors at JD Connors on Twitter. Um, I just graduated with a degree in psychology and communication studies. I'm pretty interested in memetics, uh, and we'll see what we get into here. And Jason Snyder. Jason Snyder, the one and only Cognizor on Twitter. Um, I'm an aspiring memetic mediator. Nice. Whatever that means. All right, let's get started, everyone. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about, first, uh, the infinity pool. Now, that sounds a lot cooler than it is because it is not about an actual pool, and it's not actually infinite, but it is that thing that you have where you're on Netflix, or you're on Twitter, or you're on Facebook, and you're scrolling and the content continues to go infinitely, right? You could just scroll through your Facebook timeline, and I've certainly done this nonstop forever, right? Forever. So the idea that you have these, uh, the, in the modern uh, social media environment, they're basically fighting for your attention, right? So they design these systems like Facebook, like Twitter, uh, to get you to pay as much attention for as long as possible, right? And that's their market. They're selling that to advertisers. They're selling that to um, that information to companies who analyze your data. So who wants to open up with that? Who has an opinion on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing and what we should do about it? I I'll jump off on it real quick here. So um, the, the term came from John Zaradsky. Um, he is the co-author of the book, Make Time. 
And, um, you know, the interesting thing about this, these infinity pools is this was a problem that didn't really exist to the extent that it does now. Because we used to have analog media, and now we have digital media. And, you know, in the event, when you had the uh, analog media, such as like a CD, the CD would eventually end and you'd have to go get off your ass and go change it or do something else. Same thing with DVD. Hard times, man. These kids don't know. You used to have to change the DVD disc. It was a VHS. You couldn't just rewatch it. You had to rewind that shit. Unless you were like one of those rich kids that had the little rewinding machine thing, which I was because my, yeah, me too. My aunt worked at a video recording store or videotape. So what the fuck do you call those things? Like a blockbuster. All right, Rental store. Shit. How long has it been since those have been gone? And, um, Too long. Yeah, oh, so now we've got Netflix, and they, they know how to hold your attention. They know how to retain you. So as soon as the episode ends, it goes into the next one. It autoplays, and they're really smart in that they've essentially shifted where the episode ends because it used to be you had the plot at the beginning, and it would be wrapped up by the end, but they wrap it up early, start some new shit, and then 10 minutes into that, the episode ends. And then you got to get into the new episode where they re- resolve the issue early on. But you're already committed to the next episode. So unless you're a psychopath like me and quit mid-episode, you're probably binge-watching your Netflix. Um, I mean, obviously, this is, this is not great. You know, it ultimately, it comes down to whether you have self-control or not. But, you know, who among us does? And it's just this rise of sloth culture and everything's streamed and subscription services so you don't have to pay for the next episode um you know it's it's addicting and and they're using psychology to attack us and and um it's just it's a new problem and we don't fully understand the ramifications of endless scrolling on social media endless binging and they these people are getting really smart and they know they know what, what they're doing. Chance, I interrupted you a little bit. Why don't you take it from He there? did not raise his hand, so actually James gets to go. Chance, you have something to say? You're welcome to. Roll on, brother. All right, all right, all right. So I know for a fact at least Jason is familiar with this term, hypermodernism, which has a lot to do with this current state of affairs. Um, and one... I mean, there's a lot of different directions you can take an approach to hypermodernism. But one thing is you basically distribute all your attention in like a horizontal way. And you basically, it's, it's like you can compare older times, you had maybe a bookshelf and you had these different outlets where you could direct your attention. And now you have an endless infinity pool of a Twitter timeline or whatever you have and you jump around from from one little snippet of content to the next and you can go down rabbit holes for each and every one of them Um, and one thing this does is affects your perception of time Um, and so it's easy I think for you to feel like time is speeding up if you spend an entire day scrolling through Twitter um, I, I think it's easy, really easy to feel like it's like sand kind of crumbling through your, your fingertips there. Um, and so, I mean, I agree with Ryan that it's a problem, but I also am pretty optimistic about it. Um, for one thing, I mean, we are the creators of the content. So 
we get to interact with each other and we get to decide what we're reading. We get to decide who we follow and which rabbit holes we go down. Um, and there's something very humanizing about, about the fact that you and me and other people watching this video are the people that actually make the content and we're not just being force fed something mechanical or something produced like just shoddy journalism or anything like that. We're actually participating in the process. So that's just one little redemptive note there. Um, if anybody else wants to take it up. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm very suspicious of the sort of uh, uh, Luddite view um, that, you know, we have to be, we have to watch out for all this new technology because the, the same arguments have always occurred, you know, back in the 19th century when uh, magazines and I think they were called periodicals at the time when they were becoming, you know, popular, people were concerned about, you know, oh, there's all this information, people will just be uh, imbibing pulp. Um, and I mean, well, maybe you can make the argument that we want to go back to that time, but uh, I, I don't see that. I think the question is, is wrong. It's not a question of, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's okay. This is the new state of things. How do we adapt to it most effectively? How do we take the good out of this and, and, uh, you know, maintain that and, and leave the bad behind. So I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, I, I agree with that too. Um, I used to, try to fight things and say that this is wrong. We should move and change and move heaven and earth to fix it or whatever. I, I fought against social media for a long time. I did not want to be on Facebook. Um, one of my friends made an account for me. I just was, and then I got tired of it after a few years and deleted it and I'm back on it now. And, you know, Facebook's got its issues. So does everything else with social media, but they're all tools. So what do you say? social media is a problem or guns are a problem or whatever. It all comes down to how you use it. And, you know, there can be an argument to be made for every one of those things. And, but when you start getting down to how do we get rid of it or is it good or evil, it's just the way the world is now. And you got to start accepting. Maybe it's cause I'm 31 and I'm starting to get a little bit more crotchety. I think I read somewhere that everyone agrees with everything that came out before they turned 30 and disagrees with everything after they hit 30. So, but, but you, you hit the nail on the head there when you said, how do we handle it? And it, it just comes down to self-control. Um, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, but believe it or not today, I think I spent like five minutes actually looking at my time. So I spent a lot more time creating less time consuming. And I don't do that every day. Um, but I've found a lot of power in creating and spending less time consuming. And the older you get, the easier that is. Cause when you're younger, you don't really know enough, but at some point you got to start, start taking all the stuff that you're consuming and turn it into some type of a product or wisdom or something that you can pass down to future generations. I want to jump in here. Yeah, go ahead. This, uh, that's right. No hand raising Garrett. This, uh, this tool is just like any other tool. And for my attention, you kind of talked on this a little bit, and so did you, Ryan, but how you use a tool determines the outcome of what happens after you use it. 
And that's, but it's, you have to have intention. Like, sure, you can say that if you use it right, it works out right. But what does that even mean to you? And I, I've talked about this before, but when I go online, especially into the wild web, the world wild web, I never surf the web without intention. There's something I'm seeking and I go and I find it and then I get out. I might, I might dive deeper into a subject than I had intended to, but it's still along the lines of what I'm trying to figure out. And it's the same thing with social media. I mean, I joined it because I felt compelled to, but I have a purpose on there. Uh, and I really don't verge from that very much. And as far as scrolling through my timeline, I almost never do that. I almost never read anybody else's tweets and, unless they're just like on my home page or it's one of you dudes. Like if it shows up in my notifications, I check it out. And if it's on just like the first opening screen of my timeline, I look at it. But otherwise, I don't, I don't really give a shit because I'm, I'm here to do something. I'm not, you know, like I'm at the point in my life where I've taken in a lot of information. I've had a lot of experiences and maybe that'll change at some point. But for now, I'm interested in, in exhaling, not inhaling. So for me, when you guys have this conversation about like self-control with social media or, or struggling to find a balance between content creation and, and scrolling through your timeline in this infinity pool, it's like, I, I don't really feel that way about it. I never, I never really was on social media until just a few months ago. Um, and then I came here and found my footing and I haven't really varied from that very much since then. So if this is an infinity pool, I'm sitting here pissing in it and watching the ripples from, you know, like I'm just, I'm just dumping in what I can. And every once in a while I, I just look at it and it's amusing, but it's not, it's not something like it might take a lot of my time, but it's because I'm dumping shit into it all the time, all the time. I'm just putting stuff out and I have, I have a nonstop stream of ideas and the gears keep rolling. So that's just kind of my perspective. You know, there's, there's a lot of different angles to approach social media or any other tool with, but having an intention, having an actual intention, you know, like I say, this is what I'm going to do. And then I go and do that. That's how you effectively and efficiently use a tool. Like if you pick up a drill and just squeeze the trigger, it's going to spin just like if you have a screw on the end of it, it'll still spin and the screw will fall off. But if you have the screw against a board and you press the trigger and you press, then you put a screw into a board but that doesn't do anything unless you're building something. So it's like, there's, there's levels to this thing and you can come and dick around or you can come and like learn how to build or you can test something that you're building, but then eventually you actually have to build what you are intending to build because otherwise you're just spinning gears. I have a, something briefly before we go to James and then Jason uh, on that note, I, I actually do not have the ability to raise my hand because I'm the host. So, um, it's interesting, and I think if you look at the internet in the progression of things, right, you have the early internet where it was a lot of like communication related stuff, uh, business communication, not super people friendly, and we get into web 2.0 where things start to get people friendly, we start to get like the earlier um, web chats and stuff. I think we're, we're in this third phase now where we're actually starting to see social media become an act actually effective tool. Whereas like MySpace, nobody used MySpace to, uh, I mean, shit, you just ranked your friends in public, you know, that was it. That was the pinnacle of MySpace and like forcing your shit music taste on people. But now we have, um, 
I think people are kind of coming to terms with the fact that social media is kind of a weapon. You know, Facebook, there's uh, the way that it was used in the election is a huge contentious issue. Twitter is, I mean, the way the president, the president literally weaponizes Twitter, right? Like he can tweet about a company and their stock will go up or down. It's tremendous. <laughs> huge. Um, Usually tremendous. But yeah, so I think that's, I think that's kind of what we're seeing. And that's, that's how I see it. So when I, when I infinitely scroll through my, my timeline, I'm trying to see patterns. I'm trying to see where are people thinking as a whole, where are the trends, where's the, where's the movement, you know, where are they going towards, what are they moving away from? So yeah, um, James. So Garrett, what you just said reminds me of a scene in Watchmen where the smartest guy alive um, is sitting in front of all of these televisions, like maybe 20 different televisions. And he's literally, he's using it like as a divination tool. Um, and he's trying to spot patterns just by watching 20 different TVs at one time. Um, Adrian Veidt. That's right. Yep. Uh, I, I don't really know. <clears throat> I feel, I definitely have mixed feelings about that. Because um, as Chance said, well, here, here. so, so Chance, I've, I've got two directions with what Chance said, because on the one hand, he's exactly right, that if you're not doing, if you're not engaging with media with a purpose, then you're probably kind of falling off or you're kind of just trailing in a direction. You don't really know where you're going. You are, you are training your mind to kind of, not have a firm sense of will and direction. Um, on the other hand, if you are, <clears throat> basically there's, there's a rule of reciprocation uh, with, with all of this. Uh, and if like, if you don't interact with any of your followers, then it's like maybe they kind of trail off and they stop interacting with you. And like, it can, I, I kind of personally feel like I have an obligation to kind of read what's what what people are putting out there um and it it is to me it is a kind of a balance like the last three or four days i deleted my twitter app i stopped um i read maybe like a, like a dozen tweets total in the last four days and it feels really good like i feel a lot more focused uh, but at the same time if i were to do that for a year um, i would feel pretty guilty it's asymmetrical um, and it, it would be kind of like you're taking from other people and you're not giving back um, in terms of an intention economy. So that's, yeah. <clears throat> Let's see. I think actually you guys kind of covered what I was going to say. I mean, in general, I'm, I'm really interested in what's happening to our minds, right? Because Twitter, for example, has algorithms that we don't know what they are. The, the order that they give us the feed is interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's more paranoid perspectives out there in terms of, you know, what it's really doing to us, like that we think we're being clever with our, what we're doing on Twitter, but we're really being played. Um, that's a little bit of a, more of a paranoid view than mine, but in general, I'm, I'm interested in, because I mean, just the fact that you know, scrolling through my timeline, you know, and I have many different types of people with many different types of views and taking it in so quickly. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's a good thing. So I've, I've actually noticed, I think, 
that I've become a lot more witty, like, and it's carried over into my life. Like, I'm at parties, and when someone's talking about something, like, my mind just works faster, mm-hmm. right, to be able to respond. Because I'm so used to just, like, you know, understanding perspectives and responding to them, et cetera, et cetera, on Twitter. And so that's really interesting. So that's had a positive influence on my brain. But it's interesting also that I think, James, you mentioned this of like prominent Twitter personalities can take up a lot of room in your head. Yeah. Right. And you, and you take them with you even when you're offline. And so what does it mean, you know, as a society that so much of our mental kind of processing uh, is, is kind of tied to, 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 to the Internet, even when we're off the Internet, right? Like we're still thinking about interactions. Oh, what do they mean by this? How should I, you know, did I respond well to that, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, you know, it's like almost we're, I don't know if this is the proper use of the term, but we're becoming deterritorialized, deterritorialized from our kind of lives, our kind of more, you know, yeah. immediate lives. Yeah. We might be performing better in them because, you know, again, what I said, maybe we're more witty, quicker, you know, more clever, but you know, some, something of our soul isn't there as much. Can I, can I jump back in on that real quick? Yeah, real quick. I, I just want to talk about that accountability piece. Um, because, look, if you, if you do interact with me, then I treat you like a person. You know, there's this weird disconnect with social media personalities just like Jason was kind of talking about there with the big personalities. It's like, well, you know, we're so used growing up to accessing like people in a digital medium, people on the movies or people on the CDs or whatever, they were famous and they were out of touch. And you see a celebrity when you were a kid and you're like, Oh my gosh, I just saw whoever. And there's still some of that lingering weirdness for a lot of us where it's like, okay, this is a digital platform. And this person is disembodied from my world, but yet I'm interacting with them and they have 15,000 followers and they said, hello, you know, like it's weird, but, but clearly they're just a person over there writing some stuff. But if you interact with me on Twitter, then I go, Oh, you know, like this is, this is actually a person. It's not just, it's not just this weird, uh, like it's not just this weird simulacrum that's popping up on my timeline. It's actually a person because they're talking to me. And then I try to, I try to treat people with respect and interact with them, you know, like, especially if, if someone I don't know that well on Twitter keeps popping up on my timeline and liking stuff and saying little things, I try to go check out their timeline and just kind of scroll through and like a few things and, and try to build a relationship with them that way. So I feel you on that. Like I, I feel that same accountability to the people who are actually interacting with me, but if you just, you just follow me and click like every once in a while, you're still just that weird digital placeholder for a person. (laughs) And it's, it's weird to, it's weird to see who, who, like some people have been on Twitter since 2010 and have 47 followers. And it's like, you, you have 4,000 tweets and 47 followers. I can't even like, what the hell, what the hell have you been doing? How is that even possible? I don't like, I don't understand it. And like, is that a real NPC right there? Somebody who just like has 4,000 things to say and, and not a goddamn person is interested in hearing any of it. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> I think there, there's definitely something to that. Although I, I do want to say just briefly, and then we'll go to you, Thud. Um, Dylan Madden sent me a DM and he said he liked my articles and I thought that was really cool. 
That's but it definitely, it you definitely do get that kind of experience when there's someone that has significantly more followers than you, even though like, obviously everyone is just a person. And a lot of these people aren't even like real celebrities or like Twitter celebrities. But fuck, man, if that doesn't feel nice, you know, <laughs> like it's yeah, butt fuck feel nice. <laughs> well, I just recently had Aaron Clary follow me, and that was like a mind blowing moment because I used to listen to him all the time and read all his shit, and that is- you know, it kind of motivated me to do this in some ways. And it's like, oh shit, I'm starting to kind of make it a little bit, maybe. Yeah, or like even Ivan Throne, you know, we've talked about him before, but he just posted like, look, one of my childhood heroes just followed me. What a trip yep. this is. It's it's. Even even the guys like, you know, if you have fifteen thousand followers, there's somebody out there with a million followers, and if they follow you, you go, oh, oh, oh. You know, it's, it's a weird it's a weird experience. This this hierarchy on there. I will say, Ivan Ivan seems like a genuinely nice person. That for, which which is fun. I don't know. I guess I, I guess that's funny to me because of the whole like the dark triad man thing. But he comes across as such like a genuinely nice guy, and that's just, I, I just find that funny. I appreciate that. And he's very perceptive. If you've read his articles. Yeah, I know. He's a smart fucking guy. You can tell. You know, that's a, and a watcher too. I can identify with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Watching people and inspecting them and analyzing them from the yep. second you lay eyes on them. It's, he's an interesting dude. Fud. So I think I have, I have a slightly, I don't know, I don't know if you guys will agree with any of this, but I, my perspective is um, to take the, the metaphor of the infinity pool that it's not so much about, you know, what's in the infinity pool, but it's at what level you're operating. Because my experience has been that anything is valuable and worthwhile if you go deep enough. So it's more about, you know, are you operating on, on the, are you just on the surface of this infinity pool or are you going below? So Chance, what you were saying about, you know, interacting with people on Twitter as if they're people rather than just sort of personas, I think it, it mirrors what's what it's like in real life where you know you're interacting with personas in a, you know when you first get to know someone and then the thing that makes it valuable is getting below that getting into the deeper stuff and I think it's the same with you know you can watch uh, you can binge watch soap operas on on Netflix or, or whatever you know you can watch trash and, and not think about it or anything like that but you can also go really deep and watch consume something worthwhile so i think it's just about the level the level of depth uh, more than anything else yeah that's that's interesting you know you you mentioned that you, you kind of idolize these people you kind of pedestalize and we do the same thing with celebrities and i don't know if anybody watched the um uh, i guess it's a documentary on netflix called american meme but Paris Hilton's in this movie a lot and they talk about how she was like the big time influencer back then and I, I didn't realize this but apparently she kind of created Kim Kardashian she kind of coached yeah, her friends, in- right? who she is um, but if you watch it you get a very intimate and very personal um, uh, feeling for Paris Hilton and it's it, she's just the character to so many of us we don't look at her but you start, if you watch this, this um, American meme, you really start to appreciate all the bullshit that she had to deal with and what her daily life was like. And it's, it's just crazy. But, you know, circling back to this infinity pool, this social media thing takes a toll on even the influencers. You know, everyone's looking up to her, but even Paris Hilton's got her problems. That's, Clearly. That's, Anybody seen that? 
No, I, I, it's interesting that I haven't seen that because I do watch a decent amount of Netflix and that hasn't even popped up at all. So it's weird it's that you get the way the algorithms work that sometimes you just don't see stuff. Um, so I wonder, can I just bounce off of that for a second? Because one of the things which does bother me about this infinity pool thing with Netflix or, or Amazon is the idea that it recommends things that are close to what you've consumed. And I think it's, it's similar to the problem that I have with Google where it, it, uh, it, it makes your search, uh, it changes your search based on what you've searched in the past. Because I think you lose some information, you lose some key information. Let's say if you're Google searching something, if you don't know that you're looking at something that everybody else is looking at. I think that's a key piece of information. And same with, with Amazon, you buy some books and then it recommends books that are similar to the ones you bought. It should be recommending, if anything, uh, things that are completely different, you know, from the ones you've uh, you've consumed in the past. So that, that's yes. one part of it that that I'm very wary of. You get stuck in your own echo chamber. Yeah. I so mean, it's a problem with social media as well. I mean, that's the yeah. problem of the age, if anything. Yeah. An interesting example of that. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if y'all noticed or remember, like I used, uh, I used to use YouTube as my primary source for getting new music, right? I used to have um, all, all of my playlists were on YouTube because that's where I could find the stuff that wasn't on iTunes at the time, right? And it, before they implemented these predictive algorithms, you could find awesome, awesome stuff because I, li I, I mean, I like stuff that's out there. So if you're recommending me the top 100 bullshit that everyone's listening to, that's not what I'm looking for, right? So whenever they started doing this, you lost the ability to find this good shit because eventually your recommended stuff would all like circle back into itself. And so you'd be, um, you'd be listening to this music video and that would recommend you another one and that would recommend you another one and that would bring you back to the first one. So it like, it's, it's almost like this predictive uh, kind of bubble that they have closed you out of, other parts of the internet. And it's interesting too, if you look like, uh, so I've been running a website for a year and a half now. And the way that Google decides who gets to see what is all based on SEO. So with that uh, search engine optimization, basically in like the simplest term, it's gonna be, okay, does what you searched fit the keyword, right? And then how many other sites link to this page? So Wikipedia automatically wins for everything because Wikipedia, every page is linked to like a hundred thousand pages, right? That's why that's all Wikipedia will always be on the first page for shit because it'll be just the word that you search for like bananas. So a banana will pop up on Wikipedia and there'll be a hundred people referencing that page. But the interesting thing in the same sense as, as YouTube is that as these predictive services have gotten better, I feel like we're actually losing other parts of the internet. Like there are, Things like imagine a website that's full of good content but isn't optimized for this or a YouTube video that isn't popular but it's exactly what you're looking for, right? It's so It's becoming more homogenized. Yeah, and, and I think that's bad. I think that's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting struggle that you have to deal with. Then you start depending on you know, cheesy tactics like using the SEO, which is just playing the game. We're trying to go viral, and that's why you get these clickbait headlines. And everyone likes to lambast the media companies like the New York Times and whoever for having these ridiculous outlines, out, um, headlines. But 
the reason they're doing that is because they're losing out to the other guys that do it. So it started with like the Daily Sun or some other shitty tabloid. And then they start losing viewership. So then they do some clickbait headlines, but then this alienates their core user base. So they lose more people and then they have to double down and do it more. And it becomes this negative feedback loop where you keep doing it. And it's just, it feels like there's a lot of places on the internet and in media in general that are caught in this negative feedback loop. And it's, it's a race to the bottom. James, go ahead. Uh, so I think this is especially relevant in the domain of politics where emotions are high and people really, really, feel strongly about the content that they are consuming and outputting. And, uh, and so when you talk about uh, echo chambers, this is a big issue in politics. However, I wanted to raise the question whether you guys think, um, <clears throat> whether you think these tribal structures that are kind of emerging in these echo chambers, but they are permeable in some ways, whether you think these, these tribal formations are actually really robust or are they kind of in flux? Are they kind of fragile in different ways? What, what do you think about that? In regards to what tribes specifically? I mean, you could just dish it out left and right wing politics, or you could subdivide that, but but any of those. I think, yeah. they're, I think they're hyperbolic and, and vitriolic on the internet mm -hmm. where you're starting to forget that you're talking to a human and you're just, you're hiding behind a screen, but again, to more personal relations, it's, it's not as big of an issue as it seems online. Um, I think, I don't really know, but I think Jason and I disagree on a lot of things, but I really like the guy and I respect him and I like a lot of the stuff he says. And I think so, that is more typical of the left-right dynamic in the real world than what we're seeing online. Jason is an interesting case, though, because he tries to do meta-tribe stuff, mediation, uh, memetic mediation and stuff like that. And he's really successful at it. He's, uh, his, his Twitter page is kind of like a hub of intellectual and political discussion. And there's a lot of different viewpoints that emerge on there. Um, and so the question is, is it possible to have this kind of quality discussion and quality uh, convergence without a meta tribal framework, you know, just in the bare bones, I identify as a conservative libertarian, fuck everyone else. You know, is that, is that fragile or, or, or does it permeate? And do you, do you see like an optimistic outcome coming from the, the current structures that we have in place? That I think, uh, Jason, I'll let you go in a minute. I just want to say, I think uh, you said exactly the right word there, structures, right? So uh, in the sense that we have the, for example, the two-party system uh, is going to be, regardless of the actual feelings of people, if that is the predominant power source, then it doesn't really matter as long as people are afraid enough to capitulate into voting for one or the other, right? So there's a huge amount of like entrenched power that's built into systems that we have. And politics is the prime example of that, right? All of that is systemic power. So I think what we're called upon to do 
And again, I really don't care to get into politics for a lot of this reason, right? But what we're called upon to do is to A, avoid uh, avoid the, the fault lines of political conflict that is so divisive, right? So if you meet people, like, you're not, you're not going to go, um, like, change anyone's mind by standing with picket signs outside of uh, Planned Parenthood, right? That's obviously not where that fight is actually being fought. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you have to meet people one-on-one. You have to meet people on a, in a non-political sense. You have to avoid those tender spots and kind of come at it from a different angle. And that's in a, not, not specific. It's not exclusively what we're trying to do here with ion media, but to kind of present the idea. And this is uh, pretty much what uh, Jason and I talked about is that this, uh, as far as people that disagree with each other, you know, I think like politically Jason and I are probably polar opposites, but um, and that's just an assumption, but, we had almost no disagreements in the context of the conversation that we had. And it was like a two hour conversation about probably 10 different complex issues. Right. So this idea, I think, and this is kind of what I'm moving away from is moving away from the idea that, Oh, well, there's a system of rules that exists that if we enforce that would be the best possible way to run things. I think if everyone in the world had the same personality, you could do that. And there's probably like, 10 variants of that based on personality types. But I think what we're called upon to do is to have these conversations with people that we disagree with one-on-one, right? Uh, The dialectic kind of discourse. And in doing so, I think that we're going to come to realize that we're not as different and much of our uh, differences are built in semantics and, you know, cultural identifications or, uh, party identifications or some other kind of um, identitarian differences that we have. Uh, yeah, I don't have much to add. Um, uh, so I, I think I've referenced before that article, the Medic Tribes 1.0, 2.0. They, they actually create a spreadsheet of like 30, at least like 30 different internet uh, tribes that have just emerged in like the last five years or so. Um, list like you know things they care about. I've, I've already gone over this in a previous in a previous episode, but I, I think I think you know with the fractionating media as well, this echo chamber issue um, is is a big deal. And almost we're becoming less resilient because we're getting caught up in these echo cha- chambers, and it, and we're not kind of you know having conversations you know across these echo chambers and we're not, you know, in 20 years, we're not going to survive like doing this, right? Like we're, we're going to be very fragile because we're not going to understand the world. We're going to, you know, we're going to be exposed and, you know, all of our false assumptions are going to be exposed and we're going to be weak. And so that's, you know, I, I think that's why, you know, the, this meta tribal framework or this idea that came from this article of being a mimetic mediator, it's all about what you said, Garrett, of, having conversations and one thing we're doing is we're, we're learning how the other person uses language and often when we start to understand that we realize that oh that thing that they were saying that really triggered me that it didn't mean what i thought it meant it actually meant something that's much more in line with what i actually think and so learning these kind of like how to translate um you know and i see that's what we're doing in ion is we're we're all kind of becoming medic media mediators to some degree 
And I think, you know, that's going to be the only way that we're going to avoid all of these tribes in these little, in these little tunnels, you know, just kind of collapsing through their own kind of, I don't know, lack of resilience really, because they don't, you know, they don't have a full picture of the world. And if you don't have a full picture, at least some kind of full picture of the world, what are you going to do when shit shit starts to hit the fan? And that's, I mean, that's really what mimetic engineering is, as I presented is translating an idea into the best possible way for the per for the intended audience to hear it, you know? Uh, right. But, right. So who was, who was first? Is that a uh, chance or thud? It was chance. Take it away, Chauncey. Okay. <clears throat> Taking it back to the question of whether or not um, we're going to be able to sort of deal with this platform or, you know, these structures of political discourse, I think the answer is no. Um, in terms of the traditional structures that we're currently dealing with. I mean, more and more people are becoming more and more disenfranchised with the current two-party system. Um, and so far, attempts to sort of create something new out of those that maintains uh, the majority of the current structure have, have failed utterly because, like Jason was just talking about, we're starting to form these little groups. And, and you can think of these tribes as like brain cells, but there's, there's no communication between the cells. It's just like they're firing impotently into space and the signals are not being communicated. You know, like right now you have, you have hemispheres in your mind, right? Left and right hemisphere. And they actually cross over physically, but let's, let's imagine for a moment that you have the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere um, of politics. And right now they don't communicate with each other effectively at all. It's like, it's like our politics are autistic right now. You know, there's no hemispheric communication. And so the messages are not being received and there's no, there's no, there's no crossover. And so these little tribes have formed and in an attempt to um, be able to cross over. But the problem is that the very architecture of the political system has been manipulated and rearranged to the point where that's no longer possible. And because of the fact that people are not interested in moving backwards, that's just not something that we do unless it's a revolution and then we burn shit to the ground and everybody recognizes that reality and we're all trying to avoid that. We can't go back to a traditional two-party system that hasn't been manipulated and distorted by the powers that be. So I do think that something new is going to emerge and I do think there's going to be a period of significant political and social unrest. And I think we're starting to see the ramifications of that occurring right now. But as to what the new structure is going to be, I do think it is going to be decentralized to a much greater degree. And I do think it's going to be smaller groups that are figuring out ways to work symbiotically with each other um, and on a more regional basis. And I think people are starting to recognize that the further that a power structure is away from the point of power application, the less power it should have over that. Because if I live here in Utah and somebody in Washington DC who's never been here and knows nothing about me and wants to try to control the dictates of my life and the way that I can live it and has no point of reference, I'm not interested in that. And most people are not interested in that when they think about it for a minute. And, and so whether or not, um, there is a, a large centralized government that just has loose 
power or not. I don't think that's clear really, but I do think it's going to be decentralized and smaller. So that's kind of my thoughts on that matter. Yeah, no, that's really, I think you said that really well. The, um, I mean, there's, there's essentially no difference between the American revolution where England was trying to legislate how the Americans should live their lives from, you know, four or 5,000 or 6,000 miles across the ocean, you know, it was preposterous. And then you're kind of getting the same, the same thing. It's the same principles that you have. The further removed you are from the consequence, the less understanding you have of the cause. So thud. I want to push back on something that you said, Chance, and in a way, I hopefully try to answer James's question, because I've heard this line a lot that, uh, you know, left and right in the political sphere aren't communicating. And I, I think that's, it's an over, it's uh, overly simplifying the problem, because the issue is that there are sort of concentric circles of tribes. Um, you don't you don't just have a left and right, right? You have uh, just in the political sphere alone. You've got you know liberal and conservative, Republican and Democrat, and urban and rural, college edu educated and, and blue collar. You've got all these different you know this super complicated Venn diagram of of tribal boundaries. So uh, I, I don't think that's quite right that the left and right aren't communicating. It's not clear. There's some kind of drama taking place but it's not clear at what level it is and where the alliances are and, and how things will reach out there. Now, I, w I did want to bring back one thing that, that Garrett said, which was um, that you have to talk to individuals. And I think that's right. Um, if I can, uh, I think it was Douglas Murray who said something like this, I, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, he said something like, with the rise of social media uh, has, Come this appearance that you're saying things to everyone in the world uh, all the time. And the thing is, you actually can't talk to everyone in the world at, all the time. You know, you have to talk to individuals. And I think that's the level at which you can communicate. You can talk to one person um, and you can't really talk to a group. It's, I mean, if you try public speaking, you notice this, that if you try to speak to the, to the audience, it's sort of, uh, You'll get nervous and you, you, it won't work because it's just this amorphous mass. If you speak to individuals, then you can actually communicate to them and, and you can sort of form a bond there. So I think that's really important that you, you're, you can only really communicate one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, briefly, before I let you go, Chance, uh, Ayn Rand said, the smallest minority is the individual. Go for it. Yeah. Thud. I, I agree with you, actually. What, what you're saying is, is spot on, I think. What I was talking about as far as left and right not communicating is the actual political structures, not, not the people within them. Those are false constructs, and that's, that's kind of the whole point I'm driving at is that we have these political structures that are manufactured, and they don't fit the reality that we're living in. They're, they're false, and they're so false and it's such a circus and it's so obvious now that we're able to communicate as individuals and have access to information that those false constructs are no longer effective for us because you can see that, Oh, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a person who has 
this set of beliefs that I'm pretty sure about. And then I have all these amorphous beliefs that it's just like, well, I, I kind of feel this thing, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to go talk to Joe Schmo over here and Oh, Hey, I learned something and he learned something. And I'm going to go talk to Jill Schmo over here and Hey, she learned something and I learned something. And you start to realize, okay, well I share 90% of the beliefs with basically everybody. And the stuff that we don't agree on is just kind of like the finer point stuff. Like almost everybody I know thinks you shouldn't murder people. Almost everybody I know thinks that you should have most of the control over your own life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just kind of how we, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of all how we get there. So I agree totally with what you said. There, there are circles of influence and circles of connections and they don't have anything to do with the political system. And that's, that's kind of what I'm pointing out. It's like, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for us because we're not like that. I wouldn't say that they're completely um, removed from the political system. I think the political, you know, what you see of politics in the news, let's say, is just, it's, it's like the, it's the mouth of the infinity pool, right? And there's all of the, all of the layers of, of different tribal boundaries are kind of below that. But I do think that they, you know, they, they come to a head in politics, but so I, I don't, I don't really think that they're removed. I would, I would push back on that. So here's, here's a thought, right? If you think about, let's, let's look at the, the circumstances at which the circumstances in which the structures were formed, right? So at the time that we developed, I mean, Washington said, let's not have a two party system. And then we did that immediately. So at the time it was formed, you had 13 colonies, right? You had, People had to literally ride horses, you know, for days to go to Washington to meet up. So if you think about the structure of that and the nature of, well, there's only so many people that are voting, right? There's a lot of people that don't have the right to vote. We have to group these people together for efficiency so that instead of trying to sort out, okay, well, we have 100,000 people in this county that are voting, right? Let's simplify things down to two issues, right? So there's two sides to it and we'll fight everything like that. And it kind of ensures that, and I'm not, I'm not arguing in favor of it, but I do think at the time it was probably a necessary evil, right? However, there's essentially no reason in the modern day that we need to have this kind of like representative form of government because you end up with, the, it, it diverts everything into groupthink. And that at this point, the groupthink only serves the people at the higher levels, right? The, most of the members of the group are not the extreme and the ones that you hear are the squeaky wheel gets the grease and all that. Right. So if you think about, we have, we have the internet, we have uh, the blockchain, arguably you could make a probably a foolproof election system with the blockchain. Everyone has a computer in their pocket. So the idea that, Oh, well, it's not safe. Like there's no universe. There's no universe where the normal elective systems of like, paper ballots and people counting your shit. There's no universe where you could not do a safer version of that with your phone. Right. Imagine. Well, I agree that. with all of that. The, the pushback you're going to get is they're going to say it's racist or it's biased to certain socioeconomic groups because it because of the phone. Who does that and serve? The, well, I, I agree with you, but the reason I'm bring it up, an alternative everybody has a phone. No, I agree with you. But no, the reason they'll bring it up is because they already do that with the driver's license. They say the same thing. Well, okay, so that's a good point. However, 
then just provide an alternative option like, okay, well, you don't have a phone. Go in here, use the community phone. You get a free phone, you get a Trump phone. I think I think that's that's easily the minority of of like that's less than one percent of all cases. You know, completely agree with you. Even the old motherfuckers with their jitterbug can figure out how to text 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 two to vote for fucking uh, Clay Aiken on American Idol. They yeah. can figure out how to. It's, vote. it's the old fucks in control that don't want to relinquish their way it's, of. It's the only the only people the system prison. serves is them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't exactly. serve direct democracy. Which I mean, I'm not super in favor of direct democracy because I don't think fucking. If, if all five of y'all agree on something and I don't, I don't think you have the right to take my rights away, but. What's Ben Franklin says, system. democracy is two wolves fighting a, fighting a sheep over who's going to eat, what, or two wolves fighting with the sheep over what's for dinner. Yeah. So. That's it. But see, we had to do that back in the day. We don't have to do that yeah. now. I mean, there's. I would. It's. I, go ahead. I would like to push back on, on this approach because. I think it seems to be relying on the idea that sort of everyone is going to make a, an individual uh, decision about politics, but that's really not how we operate. The thing is that we outsource a lot of our information and we outsource a lot of our decision making. And the political system, I mean, there are reasons that political systems tend to, I mean, I think in almost every case, tend to sort of aggregate into two, into this binary model. Um, and it's partly because we like to outsource our decision-making. Most people aren't really interested in politics, but they still want the decisions to be made. And so we sort of outsource them to these, these tribal uh, frameworks um, so that we don't have to, to really worry about them so much. Now, it, it, it doesn't look like that as much anymore because there's so much fervor in politics, but I would say it's less to do with the actual political system than it appears. I think it's more, it's deeper, it's more cultural, um, this, this kind of uh, fervor. But um, yeah, I, I, would, I would really push back against this, the idea of, of trying to sort of individualize anything, and, and especially in any method that requires a, a top-down implementation of a new system. I think that I'm, I'm yeah, highly... No, there's no way that that works. Um, I mean, if you look at like all of the major, I, if you, you look at like the difference that the invention of the guillotine made in French politics, you know, technology is what drives changes in politics, not politicians and not uh, the will of the people, especially. So Plus, I, I just want to throw in real quick here that if like you should not be outsourcing the decisions that are made that affect your future. Yes, if, I agree. You sh if you're doing that, then you get what you fucking get. Yeah, you do. That's the whole, that's the whole yeah, point. Well, Everybody's pissed. Everybody's pissed because they haven't taken responsibility for themselves. That's okay, but that's while I agree with that completely, and while that's true, that is not an effective solution, right? We have to we have to figure out how to have a system that prevents the individual from being punished for the sins of the many, if as you will. Yeah, I think we have, you know, there, there's a spectrum of different sort of phenotypes in, in people. And I'm, I'm just speaking about, you know, different personalities and, and the different ways that we operate, different filters that we have in the world. And you can't try to make a system that uh, only works for 
high agency intelligent people. That's just not a system that will will function. So, and I'm not saying that you know you. You can't do well, the opposite either. You can't make a system that only works for low agency people and penalizes the intelligent that's, actors because that's how you get hell. That's true. I'm just I'm very suspicious of this approach of kind of, um, you know, well we should be doing this. We should be all taking responsibility. That's I mean I'm I'm in line with that message, but when it comes to organizing society, I think there's a lot of extra layers involved there. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm suspicious. I'm with that, I just like, the system now is the lowest common denominator system. I think we need to flip that on its head. There are layers and there, and there are exceptions, but the majority of people should be taking responsibility for themselves and their decisions. And if you don't have the capacity to do that, that's fine. We, we, can, we, can, we can hash those intricacies out, but, I think it's a fundamental shift from from relegating responsibility for our, our outcomes to somebody else to taking them back for ourselves and then making exceptions or, um, you know, assisting those who either are not temperamentally capable or, you know, mentally capable of doing that, then compassion and service to those ends is important as well. I agree with you, but you know, the message is not take responsibility for yourself. It's, we got your back. We'll take care of you right now. And I think that's damaging to an incredible degree, both culturally and individually. James, what you got? Well, uh, I think out of all of us here, I think it might be Jason and I that have the most uh, divergence and opinions from everything that's been said so far. Am I am I correct in that, Jason? Uh, I'm not sure. I, okay. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't really have a coherent worldview when it comes to this. I, yeah. I, I change my mind every day. Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fair. Um, but th there's something about the intensity that Chance just brought up with regards to not just taking control of your life, but taking control of your inputs to the democratic process that doesn't quite resonate with me. And I'm trying to figure out why. And I think it might be because I think it's almost like a deification almost, or it's like, it's like the religious, it's like applying the religious framework onto politics and I don't think it scales in exactly the right way. And I, I, I don't really know how to phrase this uh, exactly, but, I, but for me, it seems like I'm a little bit more content to go with the flow. I mean, like one thing that's been popping up in my mind since we're all discussing this is we are, of course, all white males and you know uh, uh, there that is inherently condemning to a certain audience of, of people who might you know be interested in this discussion uh for me i feel like i have it pretty well off and i feel like most people in the west have it pretty well off i mean i i came back from india and i saw how much gratitude indian kids and Indian people just had for the existence of something like the United States. Just the fact that a place like this exists and that they can aim for it, aim to immigrate here, that's something that they just 
they were just like happy that it exists. And I mean, I'm, I'm happy that it exists and I don't bring that same kind of intensity to my political inputs uh, that like I, I did not vote in the last election. I did not care for Trump that much. I did not care for Hillary Clinton that much. I just didn't, I'm just content. Whatever, you know, whatever comes, comes. There's a lot of things in my life that I didn't exactly get to choose happen to me. And politics seems to be at the end of the line uh, in I, that regard. I, I actually almost, uh, I almost agree. I agree with the sentiment of that. However, I think the only universe where I would be comfortable with a system like that would be if the political decision, I also didn't vote, but that was mainly because the line was too long. Um, I, I talked a lot of other people into voting for other people though. So force multiplier, but um, now it's, it's the fact that the, the, the power aggregated at the federal level has become such that these decisions have uh, become much larger than they should be. There shouldn't be the, like, the kind of uh, choices that we're talking about on the macro level of, of politics, I think are decisions that people shouldn't be making for other people, right? There's, there's too much at stake currently. There's too much power. Well, yeah, how, how so exactly do you mean? Because my whole argument was that there's not too much at, at stake, at least as far as I can tell. So, but I'd be interested to hear what, what you mean by that. Well, so I think the way, um, let's, like a good example would be California, right? So I live, uh, I live in Reno, Nevada, which is like, I think from here, I'm probably 10 miles away from California. I could walk to California before midnight, right? Mm. Um, and there's a huge influx of uh, migration from like San Francisco, the Bay Area, and um, Silicon Valley. Like this is supposed to be the new Silicon Valley, literally just because it's close enough that people can commute, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at some of the stuff that California, you know, and, and this isn't federal, but this is like one, probably the largest state government other than maybe New York. I think it probably, California is the largest state government. Um, I think it's also like top five GDPs in the world is just the state of California. Number um, six. Six, okay. So they just passed a law recently that says every company is required to put a woman on their board of directors. They passed the law that says um, if you're in San Francisco, you're not allowed to serve your employees lunch in a cafeteria because it's hurting local businesses, right? So, I, which is preposterous, but like the, the fact that these have kind of become uncontested uh, advances of, I would say, unconstitutional abuses of power, right? Mm. If you look at that kind of trend, and this trend generally, I mean, if you look at just uh, like demographically, this tends to center around larger cities because of the, ne the necessity of a more powerful governmental system to mitigate like city concerns. Um, there's the, the, that kind of idea, that's troubling to me because you get to the point where this idea of that the that for example the Indians that you spoke with have of America is this kind of like beautiful free place, it's it's slowly eroding. And I, I don't I'm not trying to be I'm not I'm not going to be like a super doomsday like 
fire and brimstone person because I'm not. Mm-hmm. It is, it's the gradual trend that if, if laws continue to progress at that rate, I don't know whether it'd be 10 years or 50 years or 100 years from now, mm-hmm. but it's far more often that laws are passed than, the, than they're repealed, right? Right. And I think a large part of my sentiment as far as these decisions are concerned is that they're not going to undo these laws. You know, I, I think the repeal of the Affordable Care Act was a fluke as far as I'm, you know, my observations of things are concerned. They're, and I, I'm not speaking on the quality of that law. I'm just saying that was a large scale thing that was repealed, right? Very, there's so many, there's still states that have laws on the books about like fucking people in the ass. Like you, it's illegal to do that in your own house. Um, people just don't repeal that. laws, right? <laughs> Here, so, what's your stance on that one? What about in someone else's house? We need to, we need to get uh, James James Fialing in for this one. What about the car? Mike Whisper. Um, <laughs> so, but do, do you understand? It, it, it's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very easy to pass a law, especially if it's a populist like popular thing. It's very hard to repeal them, and it's far. You know, if you look at the number of laws in the book, it's literally been like a straight line across all. Um, both parties, all presidencies, it's basically been a straight line increase of laws on the books. So every law that is added, your freedom is decreased by a certain amount. There, but nobody's writing laws. That you, you can't write a law to give someone rights. You can only undo a law that takes away someone's rights. So that's what I'm concerned about. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about this country is that there's 50 different states and we do have the federal oversight on these states, but it allows you to have uh, a choice of what kind of rules you want to live in to some extent. So California decides they want to start acting like your mother and saying where you can eat lunch and other shit like that. 1800 companies left California this past year to go to a different state. And part of that's because of that part of that's because of the tax issues, fuck fires, who knows what other reasons, but there's some freedom where you can kind of avoid that, but to to the same extent, that ideology where they seem to want more more laws and less freedom, which is weirdly becoming more popular, it seems to be spreading. And uh, the number one state where both companies and people from California is heading is Texas. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but Texas is going to be a blue state probably within 10 years. That's a and fucking, isn't that crazy to think? Like Ohio, not even, Ohio did the same thing, but they did it more because of population growth within. Texas is going to do it from immigrants, mostly from California. Uh, being a, a Texan myself, I can say that actually a lot of the Californians coming here vote red, um, which is interesting. But, but they're like the more light version of red. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, when the, the Ted Cruz race uh, came here, I think there was some interesting statistic about that. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to, because I, I kind of, I don't know, I, I, the weeds discussion, I think is not, um, it, it bothers me. I, I don't know. I, I'm just not, at least, I don't know. I'm not that interested in the, in the getting into the details of the, the politics thing, because we could go down that rabbit hole forever. <laughs> But, but on the on the on the meta level, I mean, there is. I, I tend to agree again with the the sentiment of uh, of James that 
I didn't, I didn't vote. I don't feel a particular um, uh, drive to participate in the political system. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why I, I feel this way, but I have this intuition that there's something, there are high agency people and there are people who are less high agency and you have to accommodate for a system that will allow for, for maximal coexistence. And that system can't, can't rely on uh, something that only tilts towards, towards agency. So, I mean, it's, it's like what you, what you were saying, Chance, um, with the, the two brain hemispheres, right? It's, it's the fact that there needs to be some kind of communication and um, balancing act there. It's not just one or the other or, you know, at whatever level we're talking about, whether it's left or right or Republican or Democrat or any of these things, right? It's, it's the balancing act that's important on the meta level. It's not, not either or, it's both. It's, it's just that sort of which, which way does the pendulum swing at any one point in time? Sure, I feel that. And, and there's something to be said for using appropriate tools in appropriate places. Like the old axiom is that um, Democrats make great mayors but shit governors because the sort of compassionate view and the, the inclusive view and the desire to um, have people on the same page works really effectively in a city because cities are a lot closer. Like I live in a city and I have a lot of things in common with most people in this city. We share a lot of the similar background and heritage and, you know, we work at some of the same places um, and even, and even more tight in my neighborhood. But so the, the collectivist view, it's, it's like, it's like I've tried to explain to people is like, there's no such thing as a communist nation. Do you know what a commune is? it's a small community that works within itself to support each other by sharing the load and sharing the rewards of the work. You can't have a communist nation because a commune is this individual entity. Like you could have a series of communist communes that, you know, are pointed in a similar direction. And a city is sort of just like, a city is more appropriate for a communist outlook or, or a collectivist outlook because you have so much in common, so much more in common with the people in your city than you do with the nation as a whole. And it's that, it's that same sort of thing. Like you're saying, okay, well, some people uh, have high agency and, and that's a high value for them too. And other people, not so much. Maybe they just sort of perceive the flow and pay attention to where they're being pushed or pulled. But, you know, they don't have a lot of input about where they want that flow to go. Or they're just, they're specialized in some other area. I mean, I mean, there are plenty of people, you know, I'm just not interested in things like, like getting involved in the political process. I don't find it that interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in my sort of specialized areas, you know, so, and I think the, the, you can't have a system that doesn't accommodate for specialization of, of different kinds of uh, personalities or, or, or phenotypes, as I would say. So I, I want to say briefly before we go to you, Jason. Um, so there's an idea that um, Taleb talks about. Is it Taleb or Talib? Taleb. Out of curiosity. Taleb? Yeah. Okay. 
So he, uh, he says that you should have like on the highest level, like a libertarian government, as you go closer to the community level, it should approach communism, right? And while that, the word communism makes me intensely uncomfortable, I actually tend to agree with that kind of sentiment. The, I think the, the idea that we could be trying to keep things at the community level and we deal with things as a, uh, like, what's the smallest group of people, you know, like there's, um, for me, I guess you would say there's the people in the building that I live in, right? Is the, the, and I don't necessarily directly deal with them. And then there's also the people that I work with. And that would be the two groups of people that I directly deal with on a, uh, frequent, frequent basis. Right. So if there's decisions that govern my workplace, that would be best decided by the people that I work with every day. Right. And if there's decisions that govern my place of living, then it would be best decided by the people that live here. Right. And so I think we can all understand that that makes clear and plain sense. But then you look at like, that's not, that's not what's happening politically at all. You know, you have uh, decisions that should be left to a workplace or should be left to uh, a place of living or a small community or a city that are being made at much, much higher levels by people that have no skin in the game. Right. If we're going to use his terms. Yeah. So, Mm Uh, Ryan, I need you to move your pull-up bar so I can change my underdrawers. <laughs> I swear you guys are going to get a peep show. <laughs> and yeah, I've got a pull-up bar because I talk the talk and I walk the walk. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a few scrambled thoughts. I don't know if they're going to come out coherently. Um, so, you know, I think I mentioned this before too, but I think, it, you know, we have to think about what is the appropriate scale for the problem. Right. And, and oftentimes local scale is, is better. So I don't think I'm that far off from, from you guys. I, I'm kind of the idea of a polycentric governance, many, many kind of power centers, but there, there still needs to be coordination, you know, because there's, there's externalities, right. Um, as a company, if I'm a coal company, if I'm, if I'm dumping, you know, uh, carbon, the atmosphere, that's going to affect people in the whole world. Um, one way or the other. And so I think that at a very abstract level, the question has to be, how do we maximize individual autonomy and community autonomy while also coordinating, you know, regional, national, global issues among ourselves? And I think the internet goes you know, a long way in making that possible. Um, and it doesn't have to be through government, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, like like social pressure. For example, yeah, peer pressure. Well, there's, there's, there's something to be said for murder. What's that? I said not to be crass, but there's something to be said for murder, and I'm not joking. And ultimately, everything's backed up by violence. You know, whatever. Well, I mean, that's politics. political. Yeah. We've outsourced like, violence to the government. That's right. If, but if you if you if you're fucking up the environment by dumping coal slag or coal slurry in the river, you gotta go. I mean, you should die because, you know, seriously, because what you've been doing. Just make him drink it. Like, oh, it t- it's, it's perfectly healthy. Drink it. And then, you know, you've like been saying that, that my profit is more important than the health of the environment and the health of the people who are supplying that wealth to me. And, and that, that sort of brash uh, dedication to profit over all other things, that's a person who, 
a bullet to the head is really so, the only cure. So how economics, how economists talk about this is how do you how do you get companies to internalize their externalities? Right. And maybe exactly. one way is to put a gun to their head. Sure. What? <laughs> but if we're being practical, nothing <laughs> more practical than removing the problem altogether. Because it's not cost effective, very economical. Change, change that perspective. So this is the problem with that. While I may or may not support that sentiment on some level, um, you have to consider, okay, that's a clearly defined problem that we all agree we have an issue with, right? Like putting trash in the river is a bad thing, right? Now, now you have a government that's authorized to use that level of force, but let's say they made a bad decision on what that bad thing is. So they did a survey of, you know, it was flawed. Some people voted, oh, yeah, well, um, they're putting some algae in the pond. We don't know if it's bad or not, but these people think it's bad because they're scared because the other guy, we shot that dude, right? So now they go shoot the algae guy, and it turns out that was actually helping the pond, right? But I'm not saying the government should do it. If you live in a community where somebody is poisoning the community, someone from the community should be the one to take care of that problem. Well, the interesting thing is these I agree. does happen though. To some yeah, extent. Like why is it always people lame like PETA and Greenpeace and shit? You know, why why don't we get like there was like, um a there was a company called Chesapeake Chesapeake Energy, and um, I know this story because I happened to be holding a bunch of shares of their stock at the time. But um, the CEO of their company, I think it was the CEO, he was under investigation for some embezzlement or some kind of a big deal, and the stock was taking a pounding. That's why I bought it. It was like three bucks, and then um, unfortunately for him. Fortunately for shareholders, he crashes uh, his Chevy Tahoe going about 130 miles an hour down some interstate, and the car just exploded. The engine was found like a mile from the car. I mean, it was pretty fortunate for those guys. Ryan, are you implicating yourself in this murder? I have like $2,000 worth of shares tops. That's quite a windfall. <laughs> but these kind of things do happen and we kind of forget about it we have to like it's not the wild west anymore but there's that there's you know seth ridge had something similar happen to him uh, this this kind of assassination talk actually does happen well and and, and i want to i want to be clear too that the what i'm talking about too like the person who takes that responsibility on themselves they got to go too because Come on, bro. Come on. We can't have, can have murderers walking, walking the community. I've seen some Liam Neeson movies. I've seen some Liam Neeson movies, and I'd like to have more Liam Neesons in the world. Uh, it's it's murder-suicide. That's, that's not a good strategy long-term. You can have the good guys going around. That's I mean, oftentimes, the, the culprit isn't clear. It could be a system-level problem. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yes, they, uh, his brake lines suspected uh, suspiciously malfunctioned. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I remember reading there was a there was a some sort of Viking law, I think, that it was legal to kill someone if you didn't hide it. Mm. Which basically meant that the the community and the society would would deal with you because they knew about it. 
but it was illegal to hide the fact that you killed someone. <laughs> I think difficult. That's a good way to do it. So this is this is kind of how hey, everybody. I'm gonna go kill this dude, or I'm gonna die trying. Well, my back. You, I guess. Are you familiar with uh, Are you familiar with Omerta? Right. If uh, code of silence for the mafia. Yeah. So it, uh, Omerta is the mafia code, where it's uh, if I remember correctly, if uh, if you kill. Um, if you kill me, you are forgiven. If I kill you, um, fuck it's, it's That's the premise. It's like you can try and kill me, and if you kill me, you're forgiven. You you succeeded, right? But I'm also going to try and kill you, and I expect you to hold yourself to the uh, the same standard. What is it? Whoever appeals to the law against his fellow man is a coward. Whoever cannot defend himself without the law is is a fool and a coward, or something like that. I don't know. Uh, listen to Omerta by Lamb of God. They'll, he'll, he does the voiceover, and then the song's really badass. So. Uh, but yeah, no, I think there's, I think there's something to be said for that. Like that, it's tricky because, like, I don't know how, you, <laughs> I don't know how you can construct a coherent ethical system. I mean, yeah. But on the other hand, like, I really th okay. So like, if there's a fucking, uh, if there's like a pedophile walking around town, go fucking castrate that guy right? Is that legal? Should it be legal? No. Should you punish the people who do it? No. You gotta, I think there should be some kind of like the, the town hall can come together and say, well, he did what we all wanted to do. And then they just like pat the guy on the back, give him a beer and say, all right, we'll never, we'll never talk about this again. I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced. I think there, there are reasons right. that we don't condone killing people. I mean, I, if it needs to be said, I think, I think there are deep reasons for that. So um, I think the, the shorter, the shallow reasons for that are like Chicago. You know, if you look at South Side Chicago, you've got these, this um, negative feedback loop where somebody kills somebody and then this guy's cousin got killed. So he goes and kills that guy and it just becomes this never-ending cycle of violence. Not to... Honor killings. Yeah, and it just, it doesn't end. But does it end anyway? I mean, eventually, if you get a big enough gun. Well, see, I don't, so this is kind of, if, if you look at, okay, what's the two, the two foundational laws of society are don't kill, don't steal. And so if, uh, let, let's say that uh, you meet a stranger. It's the same law. Huh? Mm, I mean, That's yes. the same law. Not exactly. What about, what about don't killing, killing, killing. Don't deterioralize somebody's territory. Don't well, so, deterioralize somebody's territory. Like <laughs> so, roll with me for a second, all right? So if. That if, sounds like don't, don't offend somebody with words because that will trigger me and be territorial. <laughs> exactly. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to spiral into chaos here if this conversation doesn't take a more positive, uplifting. <laughs> no, so look, look. So, okay, so say you're, you're meeting a stranger, right? Uh, in the past, you would meet a stranger and you would have to assume that they're a threat, right? And you'd have to assume that they're trying to take your shit, if not, right? So we have the law of don't kill and don't steal as the foundational requirements for society to operate. Okay, I can have my stuff. You're not going to take it. And you're not going to try and kill me because, you know, and we've all accepted these as rules. So I think while, while I agree with a lot of the sentiment of what we've been discussing, I think it doesn't work in the macro because 
different people are going to define different things as acceptable reasons to kill. And I think that's part of the reason why we have a government is to outsource that power to a, a process that will decide that fairly. Right. Because, okay. Like look at how many, um, look at how many vigilante justice type things happened in the South in the fifties or, or earlier, you know, like there's a lot of bad shit that went on that I'm sure those people felt very righteous about and were perfectly content morally doing so. Yeah. I mean, we, we all, we all think, you know, we all kind of think at some level that somebody from a different political party is culpable for some kind of murder and some kind of, you know, whether it's, Oh, you're killing babies or, you're, you're destroying the ecosystem and that's a form of murder or whatever, whatever. Everyone's going to have an excuse to kill if, if we go back to this Wild West scenario. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the simple reason that there are just too many asymmetries in the system. That you have yeah. people who can get away with things that, I mean, it's, 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 it's like as if it's already not bad enough. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I think, I think there are, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate that, that we're sort of able to take any idea serious here but um you know at, at some scale yeah Sorry. at some level you and i are the ones who can get away with things like i've never been randomly drug searched i've never been patted down by an officer walking down the streets i um, have yeah 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 it, it does happen sometimes deservedly um, so um, yeah, but I think I think Ryan might be able to bounce off that, or or Alan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Garrett, you know, you're saying how do you how do you see somebody and not know whether they're going to try to kill you or not? And uh, what's what's interesting is back in like uh, medieval knights times, they would um, see each other, and they would extend their hand and shake hands, and the right hand was the hand they would use to wield a weapon, and by extending your hand to, to shake your hand to somebody, you're expressing to them that you don't have a weapon in your hand and that's where that greeting came from but what worries me about this conversation is that maybe youtube's gonna pull it because some of you guys are talking crazy shit <laughs> no i think i'm ambidextrous that's the world now you know we've got this problem with censorship and um social media oh, that was a good segue everyone knows that uh i think everyone knows that sam harris part of the uh intellectual dark web which is the most ridiculous fucking name. Anyway, he pulled his Patreon account and he, he's not a fucking saint. He moved it somewhere else, but the people That's... did resign. <laughs> anyway, so he's off Patreon. Um, now we're going to start to see if somebody else falls suit. I don't know. Um, but there's a lingering problem here now with, uh, with our corner of the web, with people that are, with anybody whether we agree with each other or not, if you have some sort of a opinion that's not mainstream or profitable or fitting in line with the current system or paradigm, you risk being suspended as a couple of us may have been or kicked off of various social media outlets. I don't know. So, so you're saying we should murder YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, sorry, I wonder if, uh, just to bring this conversation, uh, if we can do this delicately, um, but just as an example, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but I mean, this, 
exactly what we were just talking about for the last 15 minutes. Um, I mean, what is the role of taboo? I mean, is the, are there subjects which are so dangerous that they should never be taken seriously at, at the round table of discussion? Well, is, and is, that's, you mean that's like numerology? That, that, um, exactly what we were just talking about. We were talking about something which, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how seriously exactly we were taking it, but, um, not at all. This is an 11 day. We're not flying. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the question is, I mean, I think probably exactly what you said, you know, could be, could be taken down from YouTube or something because it's a sensitive topic or it's crazy or, or whatever. Um, is there a role that taboo has to play in society? I mean, is that an important thing? Should we, where do the boundaries exist there? Behavior. Well, is it, yeah, I would say actually law basically a derivative of a taboo, you know, essentially we decide certain things are not okay in society. So now we have to create a law to enforce it. The, the problem is that now we're getting into the slippery slope of, Certain things are clearly not okay, but what I say is not okay may not be the same as somebody else. You know, like I think, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've seen a video of someone being beheaded online. Is that not okay? Is that an expression? Is it, does it have some significance that we need to be able to see this or is it just this happened, accept it, move on? Um, I, I think hopefully the one thing that everyone can agree on is, is um, child pornography that needs to be censored every fucking time no matter what but um I, shit the way the world's going now who knows so where you draw the line then? but but you can still talk about it you know that's that's the thing like that was asking can you say a name can you see? can we talk about it and we have to, i mean it's my opinion that we have to be able to talk about anything and and take it seriously because if you don't take it seriously and talk about it, how are you going to know whether or not it's worth taking serious? You're just going to assume. Assumptions, you know, there's a reason assumptions are derided the world over. And it's because it fucks you up. I think, I think part of the issue is that ta- taboos arise as a, I think one of the things that we seem to try to do as people is to externalize judgment right? So what's a taboo? Is a taboo is we decided you don't need to think about this, so don't. There's, there are probably things that we could reduce to being universally bad. Uh, child pornography is one of them. Like, a, I was, like sex trafficking is probably universally a bad thing. Um, child soldier. Nobody likes traffic. A, a universally bad thing, right? Um, the problem, I, I think the problem that you run into is not actually whether or not we should be talking about them, but who's telling you that you can't talk about them, right? That's where you run into the issue. So if, let's say, I like, I think that conversation that we had earlier, while a bit risque or uh, not necessarily polite dinner conversation, right? I think that is a conversation that is worth having, right? I think we, you know, we need to have that conversation so we can talk out the principles of, well, I can, okay, so that sounds like an interesting idea, but let's explore that into the point of absurdity or to the point where we decide that that doesn't work, right? And I think, I think we're actually transitioning from the stage where 
uh, a lot of people just accept the internalized rules that society hoists on them and they just don't ever question it. Like, and that's uh, the, if you've ever driven through the middle of America, you know what that, those, that area is like, right? People who just internalize values, don't question them and uh, Tipper Gore type, Ooh, cool. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> so I think we're moving from that stage. Sorry, what were you saying? I was distracted by your shirt. <laughs> we're moving into the stage where everyone has to process this themselves, right? It, we're going for, and it's kind of like the transition for, uh, on, a, on a macro scale from the child to the teenager to the adult, right? So the child accepts the parent and the rules of the parent as just a fact, right? The teenager rebels against the parent by questioning everything and doing the opposite of what's provided. And then the adult questions intelligently, incorporates what works, and then throws out what doesn't. And I think that's where we're at. We're moving from this like rebellious stage that started in the 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, all of that. And it, we're coming around to this point where people are maturing and people are actually wanting to have these dialogues and wanting to ask these questions in a serious, like decent manner. Like we had, you know, like whether or not I, I would advocate for someone to go out and murder the cold pollution guy or whether that would just be a good eighties movie that I'd like to watch. Right. I think having that discussion and having the freedom more importantly to have that discussion is the part that really matters. And so this like Alex Jones, for example, I think is obviously full yeah. of shit. Uh, whether or not I find him intensely amusing on a personal level. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. He needs to be able to have that stupid ass conversation because if not him, then who, right? Like, who's. Well, and and nobody stood up for Alex Jones. So now he's gone. And now we're going to have other people. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who is gay, he's Jewish. He, He was outlandish. So well, yeah, he had, he had some explicitly, although on the other hand, the, the shit that Milo talked about and the shit that fucking, um, what's that girl's name? Uh, the one female comedian. This Katie Young. Huh? Which comedian? The, the one, it's not Amy. The Schoen, one who molested her little Lena, sister. Lena Dunham. Oh. Yeah, the one who molested her yeah. sister. She's sister. still around. Yeah, Is she Lena. the same shit as Milo? Yeah. She's part of the end club. What a though. fucking hip, uh, hypocritical bunch of bullshit, you know? I think a lot of this is, is Pandora's box. Like, like Ryan and I were kind of hitting on earlier, you, there's no real way of going back. There's no real way of unexposing the world to these ideas. And maybe, I mean, you might be able to argue with some coherency that ideas that have not been exposed to the masses, some of those maybe should be left that way. I'm not sure, but but once an idea is out there, it's not like you can pull it out because the only way to do that is 1984, and that's not going to work. That's yeah, that's hell. That's the hell answer. That's not a good one. I so think, well, that's I think Fred has some stuff to say on this though. He's getting pretty antsy over there. <laughs> Who is me? Fred. Well, Fred. Oh, um, yeah. Um, well, because I, I just want to uh, to give the devil his due. Because um, I I tend my bias is sort of in favor of more freedom generally. Um, But I mean, my question, you know, about taboo is my understanding of how minds change and the role of persuasion and um, mimetics and this sort of thing 
it's given me a, a newfound, I would say, respect for and fear almost um, with the ways that people transmit ideas. And so I guess my question is, is there something useful? I mean, is there, you know, we're always operating in the unknown. Is there potentially a use to these barriers saying, talking about this is so dangerous because we we're, we don't know which way it could go that we actually, it would, it's safer, it's better, at least for right now, just not to approach this area, that, that we're just gonna put a sign there and say, don't walk past that or you'll fall in a pit. We don't know where the pit is exactly, but it's dark outside and you, you might stumble. So I, I'm, I, I'm sort of approaching it on a, a more meta level. I mean, yes, with Alex Joan and there's the snowball effect and all this stuff, but um, is there any situation where taboo actually plays a, a positive role uh, averting some kind of destruction? Yeah. It's not mandated. Well, well genetic cloning, because I, th I think in the 90s, we were starting to kind of make some kind of headway with the fucking sheep, but um, Dolly, but we everyone pushed back against it. We're not going to do it. It's, it's too far. The problem is it becomes like a bit of an arms race where yeah, you know, maybe the West won't do it. Maybe Russia won't even do it. Whatever we don't do, China's going to do. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's the you. issue is if you – it's – I think stuff, especially that's a really good angle because that kind of makes it easy for me to make the point that I'm going to make. If, if you have stuff like that, you have the, um, anything with genetics, like that's a really sensitive issue nowadays because there's this, um, I, I would say on the left people, the, the left seems to think that any touching on genetics leads to the Nazis, right? Or eugenics or, for sterilization and lots of horrible, horrible things, right? However, if you like look at the the progression of history and the, what what genetic engineering represents, there is a valid fear there. So no, that is a valid fear. That's that's why I'm using yeah. this, right? So this is this is kind of my thought: is if you make it impossible for anyone to do the thing, right? You make something taboo. So let's say we outlaw it. Uh, genetic engineering right the only people that will do that are going to be the criminals and they'll do it with no there's going to be no regulatory element there's going to be no um the public won't be aware of this right and if you if there's one of these things like genetic engineering or um i mean lot, like cyber security that kind of shit i guess is probably another example if there's like a military element or a way that it could be made into a weapon you know for a fact the government will do it right there's a huge it's just an imperative that if something could be weaponized we have to weaponize it before someone else does right so you if, if you don't let these things be done publicly whether or not they're dangerous right we have to we have to take the risk it's it's going to happen someone is going to do the thing and we i think instead of um trying to shield like instead of shielding your children from uh, you know learning sex ed and saying oh well um just don't have sex like no now that's how you get teen pregnancies you need to accept the fact that the dangerous thing is going to happen and deal with it like an adult you know face the the horror of the world head on now i don't know the teens are having sex because they're all on facebook Thanks for That's nothing, just, yeah. Facebook. Thank, thanks, Zuck. 
So um, Garrett, I would just add to that, that not only is it like a weapons arms race and not only will it happen for a political purpose, but even just for the mere sake of people interested in doing it, the scientific enterprise. Um, if you've ever seen um, Grit Cult's account, if, if we're all familiar with Grit Cult, I think, uh, his bio is come let us research together. And that's taken from uh, something called the Biopunk Manifesto, which is, uh, which is like a video from a woman named Meredith Patterson. Uh, and so the, the whole idea is no matter how much you suppress like genetics research or whatever, we're still gonna experiment with this stuff because we're really interested in what makes up human life and human experience. So yeah, that's just one thing. Um, Let's consider the D.A.R.E. program <laughs> and the better failure that it was. Don't do drugs, kid. Okay, well, I'm going to go do drugs now. Thanks for the education on how it's going to make me feel. That sounds awesome. And I'm going to wear the T-shirts. It's fun. Yeah. yeah. I won a D.A.R.E. competition, and I did more drugs than almost anybody, dude. I think instead, of, I mean, we have to get away from this idea of, like, what do we need to outlaw to, like, no, like you said, Gary, like, these things are going to happen. You Education. Know, whatever, whatever we don't do, you said criminals, China is going to do it. Um, we have to, instead we have to just have an, we, we have to engage in conversation about it. Like, our research together sentiment. Um, like, we have to have a rich ethical conversation about it um, and about how collectively we want to move forward with these things. But to say that, oh, we're not going to allow it to happen when it can happen is, is a non-starter. Um, it's, yeah, it's ignorance. It's like, um, it's like the damn teetotalers, or I don't know how you yeah. pronounce that word. You know what I mean? Teetotalers. Um, teetotalers. Yeah. They don't drink, yeah. Two, two that's, that's, that's well said, Jason. And you know, I, used to be, I used to be a lot more one-dimensional politically. And then, um, I forget where I heard this, probably on Joe Rogan. That's where I hear everything, apparently. Um, but there was this interesting commentary where someone was talking about how everyone on the right is pro-choice when it comes to guns, um, anti-choice when it comes to abortion. Everyone on the left is pro-choice with abortion, but anti-choice when it comes to guns. And it's interesting how both sides kind of choose their own, um, what do you call it? They, uh, they're kind of hypocritical there where them they're pro-choice in one area and not in the other. And it maybe kind of reevaluate some of my or with capital punishment, for example. And the yeah. libertarians want you to all have nukes. Kill them all when appropriate. Otherwise don't. <laughs> You're just really find the uranium. Well, so I wonder the Christmas what Massacre you, podcast. What what is this we're in the death mask in this conversation? There actually will be NSA people looking into this. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Utah, so yeah, I, think they're they're really well, though. I think just the mere fact we love we love our government just for the Merrick. record. Uh, yes. We're on all the NSA uh, <laughs> computers. Um, what do you think of this idea? I think I think um, I saw this from Eric Weinstein, maybe. Um, the idea that you know binary systems have a sort of um, what would you say? Uh, sort of stability to them you know if, if they're 
like like magnets you know you sort of have this uh, asymmetry that that keeps it stable um and would be okay you have the development of this technology if it starts spreading to you know if it becomes too outsourced is there a danger that you you get some strange asymmetry where someone just suddenly gets way ahead of everyone else and i don't know uh, wipes out a, a whole nation or something because they've got a nuke or, or or something along those lines i mean on a on a meta level is there is there some danger there if if you look at so the uh, what you're talking about actually is like the red the idea of the red queen so uh, Matt Ridley wrote a book called The Red Queen, uh, Sex and something, I, I don't know the subtitle, but something about sex and genetics, right? So there's this premise in, um, in genetics that you have, um, let's say you have an organism and you have a pathogen, right? So there's 500,000 of these organisms and this pathogen shows up and kills 400,000 of them, right? The 100,000 that are left have some kind of resistance to this pathogen, all of their descendants will have resistance to this, right? So all of the pathogens that went and, you know, went, they got wiped out. They're not surviving anymore, but some of them adapt and kill more of the organism, right? So you get this continuous cyclical action of, oh, we develop a technology, we adapt to counter it, that gives us an advantage, so on, right? So this, this seems to be the law of the universe, right? It is, there is a balancing effect here. And I would argue that that is actually where the two-party system comes in as one, uh, I, would, I would argue in this case that the right would be the organism, the left would be the pathogen because exclusive, no, so look, I'm not making a moral judgment here. I'm saying specifically because of the language that the right uses. Um, it's really interesting if you look into this, the way that the, uh, the left, the left is much more about openness, and there's a moth in my room now. So um, the left is about openness and tolerance and that kind of thing. If you look at this from like a genetic or a biological perspective, right, the left is about security and uh, cleanness and this kind of like right, right, that's right. pathogen language, right, on the, on the right, yeah. Yeah, on the right. So, so it's interesting because it kind of mirrors the same thing, but what you what you have to understand and the thing that really changes your perspective on this is that we need both of them it's it's the pathogen that spurs the evolution right we need the antagonist it's why christianity started out with no devil and ended up with one right you need the antagonist as you know uh, synthesis antithesis these uh, you know that the hegel thing i'm i i I understand the analogy. I'm just resistant on the superficial level to the language. I just the, the pathogen idea doesn't doesn't jive with me. Let's it's just take, let's just call it war. It's war, not, then. You know, it's, there's a reason that war of, of sort of this arms race uh, in one direction. My my question is: Okay, you have this stuff, whether it's genetics or or nukes or or whatever. There's this is coming, as, as Jason said, you know, we have to prepare for the fact that this is coming. So, well, let's just take the nukes example, right? We've had this sort of Cold War um, dichotomy still for a while. I don't remember what the last count of nukes is, but I believe it's still, you know, uh, Russia and the US are way above anybody else. Too many. Uh, so what happens when that sort of binary system gets upset and you get, other players in the game it seems well, unlikely yeah, that that's right? going to be the case i think that's what the cold war was about 
you know? I don't think that that's likely going to be the case. I think they're, the systems are in play now. They, we experimented with this from, you know, the end of World War II until the fall of the Soviet Union. That was what that, that entire period of time was, the nuclear dynamic, which is, is there a way to win nuclear war, which there isn't. It's, you know, it's mutually assured destruction. And as a result That's of that, we, yeah, right. This healthy equilibrium, right? Like where I think, I think, I mean, unpopular opinion maybe, but I think nuclear weapons actually have done vastly more for the safety of the world than their absence. If you look at the, like the death counts in World War II, World War I, the Civil War, right? Stupid, insane losses of human life and potential, right? Versus... I mean, there's, I, I think now we have much greater numbers of civilian casualties, uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's n- nothing touches the deaths on, you know, in World War II. Well, you know, World War II alone was around 90 million. Oh, my God. Can it's, you imagine? That's several countries. That's whole countries. Look, the bombs were dropped in Japan, and it created a new paradigm for the whole world. The world had never seen such destructive force as that before. And this had become death. This theme touches on a lot of what we've been talking about because, okay, the United States drops the bomb. The United States becomes the dominant power in the world to this day. And, and that's being challenged in certain other metrics at this point, economically or whatever. But then you have the Soviet Union who rises up and just starts like printing, printing false money style nuclear weapons, just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. And the tension between those two countries drives the whole world, drives the whole world economics, research, innovation, technology, social innovation, everything because of the tension between these two great superpowers. And, and, and that's what kind of ties into what we were talking about before with James or with Thud is that, okay, some people don't necessarily want to take on the mantle of choice. And so, you know, we've elevated these things, but there has to be consequence behind these things or nobody buys into it. So we have this tension between the superpowers and those who don't want to make decisions, well, they're still guided by the influence of the fact that if we don't do this, we might get blown up. The whole world might get blown up. We need to make sure that we're taking the steps forward. And so it's that dire consequence. It's that skin in the game, but not just skin in the game for yourself, but for every fucking thing that there is. You know, it's, it's an existential threat. Nuclear war is an existential threat, and we have forgotten about that because the world is so soft, because due to the innovation, due to the drive, due to the industrial nature of people fighting against the end of the world, we created this world that's so soft and easy and beautiful and full of riches. And those of us who have been born into it, and especially the ones even younger than us, you know, these kids who are 10 or five or just being born and the world that they're being born into, there is no tension like that. And we're manufacturing these false tensions, but there's no real consequences. Like politics, for example, you know, there aren't any actual consequences to the politics until somebody picks up the sword, but we're being guided to those kinds of actions because we people are warlike. We have to have something to fight against. And that's why I argue so often for individualism and individual responsibility. It's like pick your fights and fight them for yourself so that you don't get coerced by this momentum into fighting against people that aren't your enemy or fighting against ideas that are not your enemy because somebody told you to and you went along with the flow. And that's like, I understand that some certain aspects of everybody's life, you can't control it because you don't have enough 
time or resources or energy to control every aspect of your life. But to the extent that you can take control of the aspects that you're interested in, to the extent that you can shape your mind to latch on to something of importance to you that has that you've thought about and you've decided is important and you're committed to, then you don't have to have these false wars, these pseudo wars that you're being guided into by the powers that be because you're fighting the wars within yourself and in the world that you see and trying to make an impact for the things that matter to you. And, and we, you know, we don't have that existential threat anymore and we're looking for one. It's almost like we're, we're trying to find one so that we can have a reason to fight again. Like the, the AI situation. It's like, Oh, well you guys, you know what? We might just create a computer that gets so smart so fast that it outpaces us and we'll never understand the level of intelligence that it has. And maybe that's true, but it's not stopping us from doing it. And so, you know, where does that, where does that leave us? We have to have some sort of thing to fight against. And when we don't, we just find bullshit to fight against because we need to be at war with something. Well, here's, here's my worry is that what you're talking about are heuristics that we developed in a certain environment. And my worry is that they're not necessarily good at predicting black swans, right? So that idea of a completely unlikely event, right? That the, the nuclear war thing, I mean, we were that close to causing serious, serious damage on the planet. So, you know, you say that um, it might, it might've been a, a, a beneficial thing, or sorry, Garrett, you said that, um, uh, but you know, if it works 99.99% of the time, but then that extra 0.001%, the whole planet is destroyed. There's a, there's an asymmetry in that strategy that we're not prepared for. And if our heuristics sort of lead us down this, this teleological progression towards a goal like that, I, I wonder if there's, if we need a higher perspective in order to deal with like this on the meta level, like, are we, is there some kind of curb to technological progress that we need to be thinking about? Is, is it just completely like take, take off and we'll deal with the, the ethical quandaries that come up um, and hopefully we won't destroy ourselves? Or is there actually some kind of um, resistance that we should be offering? It's, multi, it's multi-planetary humanity is the only solution to this honestly beyond that though are, I think this planet is going to die either by us or by cataclysm yeah i mean we've we've gone far longer than we normally go for these but i think this has been the best episode so far in my opinion um discussion wise this has been a kick-ass one so i if if my metaphysics is correct i think it's actually um very very likely that we're going to continuously ride the edge of the fucking razor until the end of time. I think, I think it's such, such is the nature of things that the, the place where discovery happens, the place where information is gained is at balance between the edge of stagnation and cataclysm, right? We're constantly torn between the possibility of our new insights our new choices being absolutely destructive, right? The only real choices are the ones that can destroy you. Everything else is painless, right? It's these choices of like, should we have nukes? Should we do genetic engineering? Should we, should we have individual freedom? Should we censor people's thoughts, right? These are the edge of the cutting edge of the world. Everything else we've thought about, everything else we already decided. So 
it's always going to be that humanity is living on the edge of the razor. We're always torn between Scylla and Charybdis, right? The, the choice of fuck it. I don't want to, I don't want to touch the new technology because we could go the wrong way and the throw caution to the wind and run right into the fucking mouth of hell. You know, that's where we live. That's where we're always going to live. I think that's, it's, you know, eternal war, Ion Aegon, like this perpetual conflict that is the nature of life. And I think that's something we have to embrace and we have to accept that this is necessary. And not only that, that it's inevitable, that it's the nature of things, that we're going to be always making impossible choices, you know, always making the hardest choice because that's the only choice there is to make. And that death is the inevitable consequence of any string of choices. How do you want to die? Yeah. And how can we forestall death for the greatest number of people for the longest amount of time, you know, so that, that, that reproduction can occur because I mean, I, I think the fundamental drive of all life is towards immortality or towards delayed mortality, either or. And if, you know, tech, as technology advances, um, that's, that's what it produces. You know, we're, uh, antibiotics are a great example of this. Like, yes, we have the horrible threat of what if we, if we build up antibiotic resistance faster than we can develop new antibiotics, everyone dies. Like it would be death on an unparalleled scale, right? You, uh, the, the reason that we have the kind of population that we have now is not because of modern food production and shit. It's antibiotics. There's so many people that would die from normal, like things that you get like the flu now and you're fine. Dead. You'd be fucking dead. There's tons of people to be dead. Infection, for reasonable cold. Right. So it's stuff like that. Like on the one hand, using antibiotics for these normal illnesses is kind of a dangerous game, but we have to play this game. We're obligated to play. The only way you, you, if you choose not to play, you die, you choose to die. And that's life. Life is constantly tempting you. Hey, come and play the most dangerous game. Come and fucking dance with me. Right. And while you're dancing, I'm holding a knife to your throat. And if you don't dance right, I'm going to fucking stab you in the jugular. Like that's life. That's the, that's the, the beauty and the horror. That's like, um, like Kali. Life is Jack Palance and Shane. It's like that movie, Shane. Uh, pick up the gun. Yeah. I, you saw the the gun. gun. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but that's, that's Kali. And like Hinduism, you have the, the, killing feminine right this this fucking brutal visceral deity that's both life and death it's it's sexual and it's attractive and it's calling you to live but it's going to kill you you know it's it's wearing a fucking necklace of heads that it's cut off and you know that that's the price of it and you know that this is a game that you're playing but you have no choice but to dance anyway you're gonna die regardless you have to play you have no choice but to play and uh, you can choose, but the, you, not choosing is the same as choosing. You're going to die either way. Yeah, no, death is, uh, death is inevitable. And yet we, uh, we choose to play. We persist. You, you sh- and you should choose. That's the thing. It's, it's, even though it's inevitable, it's choosing is right. And in, in the acceptance of this burden in the, like the welcoming of this choice that you're, you're you're doing something beautiful you're committing to this like this beautiful tragic and glorious story all of this together at once you know what do you think Snyder? merry christmas 
Merry I Christmas, everyone. I'm tired. I don't have anything to say. Yeah, uh, if, if we want to, like, wrap this up with Grit Cult, you know, briefly so we can call this uh, a Merry Grit Cult Christmas without pissing everyone off. Well, I guess to circle back to the beginning, um, you know, the idea about the infinity pool. I think we were talking about that, that uh, Grit Cult is sort of like the, the infinity pool on, on Twitter. You know, it's just all these threads sort of leading to one another and you can just get, go down this. I mean, I've, I've spent an hour just going through the threads, not being able to make heads or tails of half of it. And um, it is that, that infinity pool effect. It's, it's remarkable. The end. No. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, closing statements, everyone. I think that's a that's a good stopping point. <laughs> uh, hey, um, Garrett, are you gonna make a trailer? Uh, if you wanted to throw in Grit Cult, it would be fun just to make a trailer. Just compiled a couple things we said about him, and then it's like, have a merry fucking Grit Cult Christmas, everyone. And then that would, I mean, that would get a lot of hype on Twitter. But um, I'll try. so. As of right now, um, it's it's going to be very, very tricky for me to edit this video before Christmas because I'm driving to Vegas Saturday night, but I'm probably going to try and do it tomorrow. So, um, do it. I, I'm going to, yeah, I've been meaning Come to make a trailer for these and I'm going to do it. Um, I just have to, yeah. I'm probably, probably not going to work tomorrow. So. Honestly, I think there's there's no more uh, Christmassy thing than, than having a discussion which just create. Uh, uh, goes straight into politics and uh, just call uh, us drunk relatives. <laughs> yeah, no, I like think the, with the family. So I, I like that we did the the Christmas episode where this is the only time that we're going to talk about politics because I'm I'm serious about that. I do not want that to be the norm, but it is <laughs> and that's acceptable. Um, a great Christmas with uh, family politics and <laughs> talking about <laughs> killing people. <laughs> We'll make it a tradition. We'll revisit yeah, murder in we'll politics next year. Every time uh, media will ever touch politics is on the Christmas episode. <laughs> it didn't get heated, though. Everyone talked reasonably. No, yeah, that was good. Most everyone. Next, next, year, <laughs> next year, it's going to be fucking... I mean, some people talked about murder, but... <laughs> some people. <laughs> Several people. All right, so... Um, if, if no one else has anything else, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, um, a Festivus. motherfuckers! Um, happy Boxing Day, Happy Yule, Io Saturnalia, which is the official holiday of Ion Media, only because it includes the letters I and O. And it's Yule Brenner. Really cool. Yule Brenner! <laughs> have a good night!